Philippians chapter 1, uh, we've kind of gone over uh, a lot of different things in the first couple verses here of Philippians, and we tr- return once again to the study, and, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 8 today, and kind of focusing in on, on verse 6. But let's just read, uh, I'll read for you verses 3 through 8 as we... Uh, Look at these uh, verses together. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. This is a, just an incredible uh, section of, Christ, of, of, of Scripture, and I, I just get excited when we have a chance to look into it a little uh, more deeply and take our time and kind of peruse through these verses. Um, you know, he opens up with their, this, this book with a, a salutation, and he identifies himself to those in whom he's writing, the, the church at Philippi there. And he speaks about his joy. And uh, one thing the book of Philippians is about, it's about joy. It's about biblical joy. And um, in the day and age we live in, I think that there's a lot of folks that unfortunately... Um, have been robbed of their Christian joy. You see it all around us because the world is so pressing in around us continually. And, you know, in the Old Testament, as we read through Psalm 42, I hope that you picked up the same thing I did. In Psalm 42, some suggest that the writer of this, Psalm 42 and 43, is David. And uh, some have suggested that it was written during his exile time. Uh, he had to lose, or leave Jerusalem because of his own uh, life because his son Absalom was re- leading a rebellion against him to try to take over his throne. Um, we don't know that for certain. But whoever wrote the psalm, 42 and 43, uh, if you just go ahead and look back there at that, verse, uh, Psalm 42, because, I mean, just in the opening verses, you kind of get a picture there of someone who is really um, dealing with some loneliness, some depression, some alienation. As the, he says, as the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. He goes on, he goes, my, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude, and I, I, I went with them to the house of God, and with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim festival or feast. It all adds up to this guy's a little bit depressed, you might say. He's in a state of despair. Um... What is, what's, what's causing all this? Well, we know that, first of all, because he starts off, look at the way he starts off. He says, my soul pants for you, O God. 
There's an unsatisfied longing in his life for God. And in, in writing this, the psalmist somehow feels cut off from God himself. Kind of explains it like a, a thirsty deer who's panting for the water brook. That's how his soul is panting for God. His soul is thirsting for the living God. And then he says, when shall I come and appear before God? In the sense of loneliness, in the sense of alienation, there's an intense desire somehow for him to stand before God. He wants to know for sure. He wants God to deliver him from that present state of anguish that he's in. And sometimes we're all there, right? I mean, we can all identify with this guy. And so dealing with this unsatisfied longer longing for God, he really feels alienated. He feels alone. He feels almost as if God has abandoned him. And he wonders how long it will be before God shows up. you ever wonder that in your life? God, when are you going to show up? When are, you, when are you going to do something with this situation that I find myself in? When are you going to get me out of this? Well, the second thing he sees here, not only that he feels separated from God and that God really doesn't care, almost, he's dealing with this depression, this, this sadness, this loneliness, and he feels it down in his heart so far. That's why there in verse 3, look, at he says, My tears have been my food day and night. Have you ever cried yourself to sleep? Have you ever cried through the night? And that haunting question, where is your God? In the midst of his tears, he's asking himself. He's kind of rubbing that indifference of God and that impotence of God. He's almost haunting him saying, where are you? He feels as if God has abandoned him. And he feels that way, probably rightly so. He doesn't see any way of deliverance on the horizontal plane in his life. He's looking at things around him, the circumstances, and he's going, man, this is bad. This is really bad. What's going to happen next? And I think one of the third things that compels his sadness is he begins to remember the privileges that he once had. Look at verse 4. He says, When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. And then he says, For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise. Multitude keeping a feast, a festival. He was out of Jerusalem, away from the city, away from the people. He was alienated. There wasn't any time, any place to worship or fellowship. And he remembers the time when he had those times. How thankful he was for those. He's in the midst of being kind of attacked by his enemies. I mean, this guy's depressed. But you know what? He's pretty honest about it. Look at verse 5. He says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? He asks himself that question. We sing that song. Why so downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disquieted within me? In other words, why are all this turmoil going on? What's going on? 
And he's almost saying, you know what, cut it out. Why am I acting this way? Why do I feel this way? Why am I despairing so much over this situation? middle of verse 5, he kind of reminds himself, hope in God. For I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. He's kind of concluding, you know what, there's no reason for me to feel this way. There's no reason for this. I'm all, I know my God's here. I know my God can take care of me. I need to put my hope in Him. We've all gone there. We've all been through that process at some point in our Christian walk. When you sit and you kind of question your own soul and you say, what, what am I doing? Why am I feeling this way? Why am I acting this way? He doesn't, that doesn't get him out of it. Look at verse 6. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. And then he kind of reminds himself, wait, I need to remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon from the hill of Mizra. And he goes right back in his depression. He kind of tries to shake himself out of it. We don't know where that mount of Mizra is. It's not really mentioned anywhere else. But he remembers the God of his land, the God of the covenant, the God of promise, the God of power. And then in verse 7, interesting verse, he says, Deep calls on the deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. Fascinating verse. Commentators say it's a very hard verse to interpret, apparently. But it means basically you're receiving blow after blow. There's something in your life just right around the corner that's going to hit you again. As soon as you get up, bam. It's like when we went to Hawaii on our honeymoon, I thought it would be neat to take my wife in the ocean. She doesn't really like water that much, but I thought, hey, it's our honeymoon, you know, we'll have fun. So we found this beach that had like black sand. I thought, oh, this would be romantic and everything. Nobody was in the water, of course. I couldn't figure that out. It was nice water. It was warm. And I looked at this surf, and it seemed a little rough, but, you know, nothing I couldn't handle. So I grabbed my newlywed wife and said, come on, honey, we're going to go for a swim. Are you sure? I said, yeah, no problem. And, you know, we made it out about three feet into the surf, and the surf, uh, you know, knocked her down, knocked me down, rolled us around a little bit, kind of freaked her out, and, and uh, you know, and the waves just kept on coming. It wasn't like it wouldn't let up. And that's what I think of when I, when I think of this verse. It's just, you know, one after the other, things are hitting you. And, uh, you know, you, you get up on the sand and just sucks you back out and tosses you back on the shore once again. And once again, he... He says, you know, the Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime and in the night. His song shall be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. He's kind of reminding himself of these things. All the way down there, he kind of goes back and forth. In verse 11, he says, once again, why are you so cast down, my soul? Why are you so disquieted within? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. The help of my, con- the help, the help of my countenance and my God. And he goes through this cycle. And even it even goes on in, in, in chapter, uh, or in Psalm 43. And he asks God to deliver him. Sometimes, that's how life is, isn't it? It's not a, you know, a cakewalk. It's not just, oh, happy-go-lucky. Sometimes it's difficult. Especially the Christian life. 
And that psalmist was a man who was depressed. And as much as he tried to remind himself, he couldn't shake himself out of that depression. It had, a, had him in his, its, its grasp, you might say. And he was really focusing on what? He was focusing on his circumstances. He was trying to focus on his God, but he kept on going back to his circumstances. Well, Paul had one up on him. Go back to Philippians. Go back to Philippians chapter 1. We know where Paul was when he wrote this. He was in prison. He was very likely probably chained to a Roman soldier. And he was in a situation similar to maybe that psalmist under attack, kind of restricted in a lot of different ways. We talked about how Timothy was the only one who really knew his heart, the only one who was of kindred spirit, the Bible says. In chapter 2, verse 20, he was going to send, uh, send away so he could really uh, be alone. Uh, he was going to be alone when Timothy left. Epaphroditus brought him some gifts from the Philippians. But he, he must have been lonely. Paul must have been lonely. He was separated. He was isolated. But you know what? I don't see anywhere here in Philippians any questions like, you know, God, are you there? <laughs> what are you doing, God? My soul is so downcast. When are you going to move? When are you going to break me out of this joint? You know, what's going on, God? Why are you taking so long? He doesn't ask questions like the psalmist just did. Why am I moaning? Why am I crying myself to sleep? Why is my soul so downcast? It's a little bit different, isn't it? when you come from Paul's perspective. And the reason is, is Paul's not looking at his circumstances. Paul's not focusing on what's around him. He's not concerned about his loneliness. He couldn't go and fellowship with the brothers and sisters he knew in Christ. He couldn't use his gifts. I mean, he still did, but on a limited basis. Obviously, he was in jail. He couldn't celebrate the Lord's table. I mean, you think of all the things that he probably remembered he once had and the privileges that he lost, and yet we don't see that here. We don't see that, that attitude that the psalmist had. And I think he was in the same position as the psalmist. I don't think maybe even worse. But the difference was the psalmist was struggling with his circumstances, trying to figure out what can I do, how to, how to handle all this stuff. Where, where's Paul? Paul is rejoicing in his God. He's rejoicing in his God. And that's the work of the Spirit of God. In the New Testament, Galatians chapter 5, it says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy. If you don't have joy in your life, you're, 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 you're not being filled with the Spirit of God. We need to be continually filled with the Spirit of God. Romans 14.7 says that we have in the kingdom righteousness, peace, and what? Joy in the Holy Spirit. And that, that word joy is kind of elusive for a lot of people, so we kind of came up with a, a little working definition, and we, we defined it this way. True spiritual joy is not related to circumstances. It's a gift from God to those who believe the gospel of Christ being produced in them by the Holy Spirit because they receive and they obey the word of God mixed with trials and keep their focus on their eternal glory. <laughs> I know it's a long definition, but it's one that works. That's theological joy. That's a proper understanding of what 
the Bible calls joy. It's not related to our circumstances. It's a gift from our, our God to those who believe Christ. And it's produced by the Spirit of God. So if you're focusing on your circumstances, you're not going to have the joy that you should have in Christ. And he began there in, in verse 3 to remember certain things. And we, we call that the joy of, of remembrance. He said, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you. It was almost to say the Holy Spirit produced such joy through these sweet memories I have with you. Kind of the joy of, of recalling those events that were in his life at that time. I hope God does that for you, that you can sit down and think back and say, you know what? Thank God for my relationships here or my relationships there. I thank God for this time in my life. We also looked at the joy of prayerfulness or the joy of intercession. Verse 4, he says, In every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. They were writing him. They were concerned for him. And he's writing back saying, Hey, don't be concerned about me. I'm okay. God's taking care of me. I have joy in the Spirit. Always offering prayer with joy. And we talked about that word prayer, and it means petition. In other words, he was, he was interceding for others. He wasn't going before God just asking for things in his own life. He was constantly praying for those whom he loved, those whom, whom he cared for. And the Holy Spirit generates that kind of prayerfulness in our lives. Sometimes our, our prayer life is kind of whittled down to a little, you know, five things we want. And so we go before God and we petition God for these five things. We need to be constantly praying for others. Joy, true biblical joy, spends its energies ministering and praying for others, not just on ourselves. And the last one we looked at last week was the joy of participation in verse 5. And he looks back and he says, Man, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. That koinonia kind of fellowship, that, that common bond we have together in Christ. He really exalted in the, the reality of, of these people knowing Christ and coming alongside of Him and helping Him in His ministry. And, and really, just what a blessing that is. A joyful person is, is someone who misses the fellowship when they're not here. You should long for it. You should be desired to be among the faithful brothers and sisters of our Lord. I mean, yesterday I had a, another engagement. I had to do some proctoring down in, uh, with, with Joe and Diane. And they do these tests a couple times a year and so they asked me to sit in and you just kind of watch the people while they take the, the test. And uh, so I was not here and I remember calling my wife and I was saying, you know, well, how's everything going with the VBS? And, you know, and she called, it's going great. You know, Booty and Sam and some other guys kind of take, took over and it, it was working great. We're getting stuff done and we're having a lot of fun too. And I, in my heart I thought, man, I wish I was there. And I really meant it. I mean, who wants to be stuck in a room with 20 other people on a beautiful day like yesterday, you know, watching them for five hours at a time, take a test. And I thought, boy, you know, I, I kind of miss that. And, and we should. We should miss the fellowship when we're out of town. We should miss 
the, the bond that we have. You know, gathering together should not be a, 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 a task that we do every week. It should be something that we can't wait to participate in. That's true biblical fellowship. That's what, that's what it means when we come together as the body of Christ. I mean, you think in the New Testament, you know, they just didn't do this thing once a week, beloved. They didn't do it twice a week. It says they went from house to house. And the idea is, okay, you know what? After church today, you guys, everybody come on over to our house and then maybe we'll finish up at Danny and Nita's and then maybe we'll top it off over to somebody else. I mean, that's how it, that's what it meant. And so then, you know, Monday night we're going to meet somewhere, Tuesday night. And sometimes we find ourselves, oh my gosh, we got three meetings a week. What are we going to do? You know, we're so busy. And you stop and you honestly, honestly assess how much time is given to, to gathering with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And I guarantee you it's a fraction of the hours you spend every week. And even for myself, it's a fraction of the time that's spent when we're actually in one another's company, fellowshipping as the body of Christ. So that participation is that koinonia, that kind of fellowship that comes from the Spirit. Well, today we want to look at the joy of anticipation in verse 6. He says, There being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know, the joy of anticipation is this. I kind of relate it to the church. And you know what? To be honest with you, there's never been a church that I've ever ministered in, that if I truly just looked at what the church is, like right now, just what we are, I get discouraged. I get discouraged. I start counting up the thing. You know, okay, we've got four people coming out to prayer meeting on Wednesday night out of a congregation of maybe 40 or 50. That's not good. You know, we got, you know, and I go through all these things. And I walk away going, oh, God. You know, somehow, you know, make this thing happen. Can't do it. See, the key is don't spend time there. Don't, don't focus on what the church is today. Anybody would be discouraged with that because it's made up of imperfect people like you and, and like myself and, and, you know, that we still deal with sin, we still deal with all these issues. And so if we look at the church, we're not going to look at a perfect body of believers. It can be very discouraging to look at the church in its present form. But what you have to do is look at the church ultimately. What will the church be ultimately? Because the Bible says that the church ultimately will be pleasing to God. If you look at what the church is going to become in Christ when we're all glorified, that's an exciting thing. <laughs> Praise God. That's what Paul's perspective is. He's anticipating what's coming. He's not looking at his own life. He's not looking at everybody else's life saying, oh man, look at these people. Or look at me. Look at the issues I'm dealing with. No, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's his perspective. And his joy, he, he pulls from the future, not from the present. It's a tremendous verse. A lot of us have memorized that verse. But sometimes we forget the practicality that it has in our lives each and every day. He has such confidence here. Look at what he says in verse 6. He says, being confident of this very thing. That word there means to be persuaded. In other words, to be sure, to be absolutely convinced about what he's saying. 
There's no gray area. There's no, but what if? Or, you know, this or that. No. None of that. He says, I'm absolutely convinced of this very thing. Well, what is it? Paul, tell us. And he says that he who began a work in you. Who's that? God. God began the work. That's who began it. That word there, began, it's only used two times in the New Testament. Very rare word in the Greek language. It's used here and over in Galatians chapter 3. Turn over there, Galatians chapter 3. It's the only other place it's used in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 3, and look at verse 3. Paul's talking to the Galatians, kind of caught up in a lot of legalistic things, and he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, that's the word, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Same word. Having begun in the Spirit. Both times this word is used in the New Testament, it relates to our salvation. It points back to that, that point in time when the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, transformed our lives. We were born again. So it's used twice in the New Testament, both times it's referring to salvation. And so he says, back to Philippians, he says, being confident of this very thing, what's that thing that he, God, has begun? Has begun. You know, I always chuckle when People say, yeah, you know, when I, was, when I was 16 or whenever their conversion was, you know, I finally found the Lord. And I always want to say, no, you didn't. You know, you didn't find the Lord. I mean, you know, He was always there. I mean, it's just a matter of, you know, kind of Him saving you. That's what happened. He drew you to Himself. Because salvation is a work of God. It's not a work that we can perform. It's not something we can do. Even in Acts 16, 16, 14, when at the church of Philippi, when all this stuff began with Philippians, it says about the, uh, the woman of Lydia that, that God opened the heart of Lydia. He opened her heart. She was the first convert in this church in Philippi. It's a work of God. Paul gave the gospel and the Lord opened her heart. And she was saved. And that's the way this church began. And then God saved, saved some other folks on, the, on, the, on that day by the riverside, and then He saved the Philippian jailer. Shook his whole jail, you remember that? Kind of shook the guy up a little bit. God granted that jailer faith in his household, it says. And God started this work, this church in the city of Philippi. And it refers back to that time of salvation. What, what beginning is he talking about? He's talking about the beginning of salvation. And Paul says here that he is absolutely persuaded of this very thing, that God, who saved you, began the work. See, it's important that we understand this because this is very basic theology. It's very basic. If you can't get beyond this, then everything else is going to be messed up. We have to understand that salvation is a work of God. 
He who began this good work is God. Look at verse 29 of Philippians chapter 1. Verse 29. Look at what Paul writes again. For to you it has been what? Granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. What that means is that we're a passive recipient of this whole deal. It's God giving us a gift. For Christ's sake, it says. Not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So God gives us, He grants us the faith to believe in Him. And then He also grants us some suffering along with that. Look at chapter 2 of Philippians verse 13. Once again, Paul reminds him, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for His good pleasure. It's God who saves sovereignly. He saves completely. Listen to John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on His name. And listen to this, Who were born again, not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, kind of encompasses all these things, just in case you're trying to squeeze something in there, but of God. Salvation is clearly God's work. In Acts chapter 11, the very important statement made in verse 18 11.18, it says, And when they heard this, the report of the Gentile conversions is what they're talking about. The people quieted down, and they glorified God, and here's what they said. Well, then God has granted or given to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Even when we repent, that's something God gives us. He grants us repentance. God gave them the repentance. God gave them the faith. God gave them the salvation. God opened up their heart. And as we learned when we went through 1 Peter, the reason He did that is because He chose them before the foundation of the world. That's why in the book of Acts it says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. It's a, it's a work of God. It's where God works out His eternal plan. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says, verse 13, We should always give thanks to God for you. Always. Why should we give thanks to God? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Can't be any clearer than that, folks. Verse 14 goes on and he says, And it was for this He called you through our Gospel. God chose you, God called you, God gave you repentance, God gave you faith, and God saved you. It's all a work of God. And it boils down to either you believe in a God-centered salvation or you believe in a man-centered salvation. Take your pick. Titus chapter 3, verse five, 4 and 5 says, But when the kindness of our God and Savior and His love for mankind appeared... Verse 5 says, He saved us. Did you get that? When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. 
not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to what? His mercy. He saved us. James chapter 1, verse 18, I think it says, By the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the Word of God. It was His will. It was His work. He did it. He saves us. He redeemed us. And you say, okay, whew, enough. Well, let's go back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Where he says, being confident of this very thing, that He, God, who began a good work in you, will complete it or perfect it. This work, this salvation, is not only a work of God, but salvation is a noble work. It's a good work. It's, 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 it's a, this word here is kind of the idea that um, it's brought to completion. You know, Paul doesn't say here, you know, being confident of this very thing that you began a good work in you, hopefully it'll work out. Hopefully you'll hang in there. Hopefully you'll do the right thing. Hopefully you'll do whatever. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I'm confident of this. I'm assured of this. This is something that's absolutely, positively, I can say. I'm convinced. I'm fully persuaded of this one thing. That God who saved you, He began a work in you and it was a good work. It's a sanctifying work. And you know what? He's going to complete it. F.B. Meyer, in one of his commentaries, he wrote this. He says, We go into an artist's studio and we find their unfinished pictures covering large canvases and suggesting great designs, but which have been left either because the genius was not competent to complete the work or because paralysis laid the hand low in death. But as we go into God's great workshop, we find nothing that bears the mark of haste, of insufficiency, of power to finish. And we are sure that the work which His grace has begun, the arm of His strength, will complete. That's true. What God begins, Paul is saying, He completes it. Period. It's not only a good work, it's a, it's a powerful work. Salvation is a work of God. It's a good work. It's also a powerful work. Romans 5 has some just wonderful things. Turn over there to Romans 5 concerning our salvation. Look at verse look at verse six. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. But much more then having now been justified by His blood, 
which is a judicial term. It means made correct, made right. The scales are, are equal. We shall be saved from the wrath through Him. Verse 10. For if we, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. What is He saying? What does that mean? That last verse, verse 10. It means this. If you were an enemy when God saved you by Christ's death, how much more do you think God could hold on to you and keep you saved by His life? If His death can save you, then His living can keep you. Do we forget that? And He ever lives to intercede for us, the Bible says. And so, Paul is saying basically here, you know what, I have this joy of anticipation. Now, you may have problems in the church, you may have problems in your life, anxieties, whatever's going on. But you know what, I'm not looking at that. I'm, I'm anticipating what the church will be when it's completely glorified. Sometimes you can get discouraged even in your own Christian walk, can't you? Sometimes there's those besetting sins that just seem to come back and haunt us. At every turn, we just can't seem to shake, whatever it might be. One thing the enemy wants you to do is focus in on that, that one sin and just, just, you know, totally just focus on it. To where you're just so depressed in your Christian walk, you don't feel worthy of anything. God says, you know what? I paid for that sin. I washed that sin away. When I look at you, I don't see that sin. I see the righteousness of my Son, Jesus Christ. And one day, in practice and in practicality, you're going to be just like that. You're going to be perfect in my presence. You may not be right now, but that's okay. Because I'm going to hold on to you. Our religion, our faith, our belief in Christ is not based on performance. If you were an enemy, you could be saved by Christ's death. You could definitely be kept by His life. Turn over to Romans 8, verse 29. I mean, this kind of just wraps it up, beloved. I, I, I mean... I don't know what other text to use to, to kind of make this point very crystal clear. And I mean, you know, maybe, maybe you can come up with another interpretation or something, but I mean, to me, it's, it's pretty right in our face right here. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 29. For whom God, He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, Romans 8. Moreover, whom He predestined, these also He called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Notice it's not justifying. It's not in the present tense. It's in the past tense. It's a completed act. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He asked the question. 
Good question to ask. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He asks the question once again in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Once again, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Shall distress? No. Shall persecution? No. Shall famine? No. Or nakedness? No. Peril? No. Sword? No. Verse 36. It is written, For your sake we are killed all day long and we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Paul writes, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, that's a key verse, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? I mean, I don't know how else to go about explaining that our salvation is a work of God. And, and that it's, it's, it's a noble work, it's a good work. And that it's something that He's going to complete. The one who saved us will perfect us. The perseverance of the people of God, the preservation of the people of God, the reality of salvation, all that justification, all that leads to glorification. One day we will be in His presence. Jesus said in John 6, 37, 39, All that the Father has given to me shall come to me, and I have lost none of them, but shall raise him up at the last day. Nobody's lost in that process of God's sovereign will and His plan of salvation. Nobody falls through the cracks. Say, well, I knew somebody one time who, you know, boy, they used to go to church, and they, but now they deny Christ. Well, you know what my message would be to them? Get saved. <laughs> Come to Christ. No, but you're not understanding. They went to church. Who cares? Do you think coming to church makes you a Christian? Do you think saying a prayer makes you a Christian? Do you think, do you think trying to live a good life makes you a Christian? I mean, there's a lot of people in the Mormon faith that, that totally serve another God, but practically in their life, they probably put a lot of us to shame. Because the faces they understand it, at least they live it out, most of them, in a very real way. They don't have a proper understanding of who Jesus is, which is a very basic thing to salvation. I'm not saying they're saved. I'm just saying practically, if you could be saved by living a good life, they'd probably be in the ballpark. But you can't be saved by living a good life. You're saved when God touches your heart and He causes you to realize, you know what? I can't do anything here. 
I am a wretched sinner in need of God's grace. I can't clean myself up. I can't do anything. God, help! That's the prayer He wants to hear. That's the attitude He wants from your heart to His. And this salvation anticipates perfection. You notice at the end of verse 6, they're back in Philippians. It says very clearly, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work, a noble work, in you will complete it. Not may, not might, not maybe by chance if you cooperate with him. No, he will complete it. And then it says, until the day of Jesus Christ. What is that talking about? Kind of interesting. It's not the day of the Lord. That's a common term that's used in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. It's used also 19 or 20 times in the Old Testament there. The day of the Lord always refers to the divine judgment on sinners. It always refers to the outpouring of God's wrath on sinners. The ultimate expression of the day of the Lord will be at the return of Jesus Christ when God pours out His wrath on all the ungodly of all the ages. But in the Old Testament, there were other days of the Lord. Any day in which God moved to uh, sever severe judgment on sinners could, could be called the day of the Lord. The final day of the Lord is the day when He comes to judge the ungodly at the second coming of Christ. It's also called in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, the day. It's also called in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, that day. And in both cases, it refers to the day of judgment, a day of wrath, a day of vengeance, a day of punishment for sinners. This is different. He doesn't say here the day of the Lord. He says the day of Christ Jesus. Well, how is it different? The day of Christ Jesus obviously refers to some time when believers will be glorified. Because that's what He's looking forward to. He's going to perfect you in the day of Christ Jesus. He speaks of a day when believers will become perfect. When salvation will become complete. When justification, sanctification, all that will become glorification. Look at verse there at the end of the verse that you may approve the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the what? Day of Christ. And that too is the time when believers will be presented to God as blameless. Over in chapter 2, verse 16. Once again, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of the Lord. No, in the day of Christ. That I have not run in vain, labored in vain. See, here the day of Christ has something to do with some positive event where the believer will be rejoicing. So they have a positive reference in the believer's life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you look at verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. It says, We wait eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. 
that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's interesting. Now we have the day of Christ Jesus, the day of Christ, twice in Philippians, and now we have the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also a reference here to believers being blameless. Time in the future. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14 says, We are your reason to be proud as, all, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. It's another term. First the day of Christ, then the day of Christ Jesus, then the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now the day of Lord Jesus. Referring to that time of joy, that time uh, of rejoicing that's going to be happening in the future. It's one other reference in First uh, Corinthians 5.5. 5. And this is kind of a disciplinary situation. A sinning believer is to be delivered to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved, it says, in the day of what? The Lord Jesus. So once again, you have it there. You, the day of Christ, the day of Christ Jesus, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of our Lord Jesus, and also the day of the Lord Jesus. And they all refer to the completion of that glorification process that now is in process. We're not glorified yet. So whenever you see the day of the Lord, you know that you're talking about the judgment of sinners. When you're reading through Scripture, you see, oh, day of the Lord, talking about sinners, talking about their judgment. Whenever you see the day of Christ or the, the day of Christ Jesus, any of those terms, you're talking about the glorification of the saints. Big difference, right? Would you rather be at the glorification of the saints or, you know, the, the punishment of the sinners? And I think I'd rather be with the saints, to be honest with you. And the Lord makes that distinguishing characteristic clear by introducing those, those names of Christ. And he's going to carry you right out to the time when we meet Christ. That's why Paul says, I'm confident of this. This isn't a questionable thing in his mind. It shouldn't be a questionable thing in your mind. He's going to carry you right up until you meet with Christ. God will finish that work of grace. William Hendrickson wrote this, God is not like men. Men conduct experiments. But God carries out a plan. Big difference, beloved. Big difference. We are divinely preserved. I mean, it's just, it's just wonderful. I wrote a bunch of verses there down at the end of your outline. And here's what those verses relate to. You don't need to look them up. I'm just going to go through this kind of quick. But in Psalm 89.33, it says that we're under the divine faithfulness that will never be removed. In John 3.16, it says that He has given us eternal life that will never end and will never perish. John 4.14 says that we drink from a spring of water that will forever bubble up. John 6.37 and 39 say that we have taken a gift that cannot be lost. John 10.28 says that we are in the hand of the Good Shepherd out of which hand we can never be snatched. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says that we are bound by a chain that cannot be broken. Romans 8, 39 say that we are loved with a love from which we can never be separated. Romans eleven twenty nine says that we are recipients of a calling which can never be revoked. 2 Timothy two nineteen says that we are built on a foundation which can never be destroyed. And 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5 says that we have an inheritance that will never pass away, that will never fade. I don't know about you, but that gives me a little bit of confidence. A little bit of excitement. When I look at my miserable life every day, I can say, you know what? This isn't the end. 
God has got me in process. And one day, I'll be complete. I'll be glorified in Christ's presence. Not because of who I am, but because of who He is. That's the joy of anticipation that Paul is trying to get across to us. And I say it's very fundamental to your faith. If you don't pass that, I don't know, I don't know what there would be to live for in the Christian life. If you didn't have the security of salvation, what good would it be? I know that if it was up to me to keep my own salvation, man, I'd be lost a long time ago. Because I'll tell you what, sometimes I can be pretty unfaithful. But I praise God that we have a God that even though we're unfaithful, the Word of God says, that He what? He remains faithful. That should give us a joy. That should give us the motivation we need to go out and share this message of the Gospel with those who have yet to hear it. So that they can respond. So that God can touch their heart. We're not to go out and talk people through a little prayer. We go out and we share the Gospel. What's the Gospel? The Gospel is basically this. That we're all in need of forgiveness. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Basic. Elementary. That's not rocket science. You can go out and talk to anybody on the street and they'll say, well, yeah, I sinned once or twice. Okay, you're a sinner then. Next step. What are you going to do about that? They have to understand they can't do anything about it. God has to do a work in their heart. They need to go before a holy God and say, hey, you know what? I blew it. I am not going to go to heaven because I am a sinner. And I need to cry out to you, a holy God, to save me. And He'll do it. And then you let God do the work. You don't need to lead them through a little prayer. Let them pray on their own. If God's speaking to their heart, I think that He can figure out the words to give them to say. Right? I think so. I think the Holy Spirit is capable of kind of motivating somebody who wants to come to Christ and God's working in their heart and God's drawing them because it is a work of God, right? It's not a work of man. See, the problem with the church is we've come up with this scheme to, to kind of usher people into the kingdom of God without them even knowing it. It's called cheap grace, cheap salvation. Just pray this prayer and then you're saved. Welcome to the, 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 the brethren and then go on to the next person. That's not salvation, beloved. That's not salvation. You never see Jesus grabbing somebody and saying, pray this prayer. What's He say? He says, follow Me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Admit your own need of a Savior. That's the first step. If you're not at the first step, you're not going to have salvation. And we all have to come to the first step. We all have to admit our need of a Savior. And that's why Paul is so confident here I just want to read this one last verse and we'll close with prayer. It's in Jude. And closing words. I mean, if this doesn't do it for you, nothing will. Now to him who is able, who's that? God, to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. Let's down a word of prayer and ask the worship team to come up. Father, we come before You today. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that we can come before You this morning. And Lord, that it isn't upon ourselves to draw people to You. Lord, we're, we're just a message. Boy and girl, Lord, we give out the message of the Gospel. What, what people do with it, that's up to You. Because you begin the work of salvation. It's a work that you have to do in people's hearts. We can't 
make them do it. We can't perform some magical routine and all of a sudden you're saved. Lord, that's reserved for you and your spirit and you do it through your word. And Father, we, we just praise you that you can give us that confidence through your word as believers that nothing can separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. Absolutely nothing. Lord, I don't know about anybody else, but that motivates me to live a holy life each and every day. I think if it does anything else, you're not saved. I think if that truth would motivate you to go out and sin more and abuse God's grace, you haven't understood God's grace. And Father, we just pray this morning that if there's anybody here that has yet to put their faith, their trust in You, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to You. Because only You can do that. A church can't. A person can't. Lord, only You. pray that You give them the proper understanding of Your Word. Lord, I pray that as believers that we would love You so much that we'd want to obey You. And that's that peace that surpasses all understanding. Knowing that we're saved and knowing that each and every day it's not dependent on us to keep that salvation secure. That that gives me just joy beyond belief. Father, we pray that you produce the joy of the Spirit in each of our hearts. Father, we ask that you would just do that work. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.